Right, so the question is, what about praying for the dead? Uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, because this is quite important, because there are a lot of Christian sects, you know, like Mormons and things like this, who really are into praying for the dead, um, and of course Catholics are as well. And so, so it is important to understand a little bit about this. Um, let me say that the, the, the idea of praying for the dead in fact comes not from the Old Testament or the New Testament and the verses that get quoted from the New Testament we'll have a look at in a few moments but the idea of prayer for the dead including the idea of purgatory and, and again we've done tapes here when I've explained the background of the false teaching of the Catholic Church what the teachings are where it came from but the the thing about praying for the dead and purgatory and stuff like that uh, although the two aren't necessarily connected there are some people who believe in prayer for the dead who don't believe in purgatory like the Catholics do but the point is the idea of prayer for the dead doesn't come from the Bible it comes from the Apocrypha and the Apocrypha were groups of books written in the, you know, sort of like the two or three hundred years or so before the New Testament was written. And uh, throughout history, the church has always rejected these books as being part of the Bible. One of the biggest reasons being that they're silly, all right? I mean, they're just stupid books. Um, and I mean, they're not inspired at all. The only church that has accepted them has been the Catholic Church, and that is only just in the last few hundred years. But then that's because these books agreed with the false doctrine of the Catholic Church. So it suited the Pope to get a bit of so-called backup, you see. So the Apocrypha has never really been accepted as being part of the Word of God. And it's so silly and weird that, I mean, it's quite blatant, it doesn't. And its teachings are so against the rest of the Bible that there's no way that um, it can be. Um, now, one of the verses, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, and um, I did debate, when we were doing the Salvation series, I debated <coughs> when we were doing about the resurrection of the body and being raised from the dead, I debated bringing this aspect in but didn't, so perhaps we can do it now. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is teaching them about the nature of the glorified body that they were going to get at the rapture, alright, because at the rapture everyone in the church gets their glorified bodies. And if you go down into verse 29, and Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, because I mean there was teaching around in the early church that in actual fact the resurrection from the dead wasn't a literal thing. Uh, the Sadducees, uh, we spoke about this last week a bit, the Sadducees for instance didn't believe in life after death, you know they were the bishops of Durham and things like that, the modernists. And uh, so there was always sort of flying around the idea that there's not a literal resurrection from the dead and that life after death was kind of all this floating around in some trans-dimensional space, you, you know, all this weird stuff. Um, that lots of Christians even now seem to believe, but I mean, silly stuff, you see. And Paul's in here, Paul is showing them how ridiculous it is to not believe in the resurrection of the body. And so he's arguing for the necessity of the idea that eventually the dead will be raised. Now, as he goes through his argument, in verse 29, you get a most strange thing that he says. And he he's using this as part of his argument to show that there has got to be a resurrection from the dead. And in fact, as we saw in the Salvation series, that resurrection from the dead isn't just for Christians, it's for unbelievers as well. Now then, in verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? 
Now, that's a real stickler, isn't it? Because it looks like Paul is not, not just sort of referring to the fact that some people baptise people on behalf of the dead. And the Mormon church do this. The Mormons, they are forever being baptised on behalf of the dead. And in fact, I mean, I think the idea with the Mormons is that out in America, in their Super H quarters at, um, you know, some Salt Lake City, they've got this massive computerised filing system. And they, they are literally trying to be baptised on behalf of everyone who's ever lived because they believe that that will help them in their salvation. I mean, it's a daft idea. But here, it looks like Paul is saying, well, people get baptised on behalf of the dead, so what's the point of them doing that if the dead aren't raised? And it looks as if Paul is, is, is really familiar with the idea of being baptised you know, sort of on behalf of the dead, and half approves of it as well. So the point is that some people who have weird beliefs, be they Christians or unbelievers, they sometimes turn to a verse like this and they say that the Bible says it's okay to pray for the dead and, you know, be baptised on behalf of the dead. And of course, we know that the whole idea of praying for the dead is utter lunacy for this one simple reason. The moment someone dies, they're either in paradise with the Lord if they're a believer or they're in the centre of the earth in Hades if they're an unbeliever. And it's as simple as that. And nothing can change the state in which they are in. It's as simple as that. Because believers who die, and they're in paradise in heaven, nothing can get them out of there, and believe me, they don't want to come out either, they're quite happy there. And unbelievers who die and go down into Hades, there's no escape for them from Hades either. So therefore, prayer, the idea of prayer, is to make something happen. Prayer becoming a channel that God uses to do something. If you do something, by definition, something changes. Can you see that? doing means something changes. Prayer is to enable God to do things, therefore prayer is to bring about changes. Or that's one aspect of prayer, obviously there's just chatting to the Lord and having personal fellowship with him, but the point about intercessory prayer is that you're seeking through prayer for God to change something. Therefore the notion of praying for people who are already dead is absolutely lunatic, because by definition nothing in their situations can change. Can you see? The saved are in paradise with Jesus, the lost are down in Hades at the centre of the earth, and that is that. Eternal destiny has been decided by the time you die. Once you die, well, you are eternally in that condition, be it lost or be it saved. So therefore, the idea that we can do anything to affect in any way the status of someone who has died is, of course, absolutely crazy. Their status cannot change, Therefore, there's nothing for us to do, except, possibly, in the sense that when people die, to give thanks for their life. But that's not praying for any changes, that's just us acknowledging that, you know, that the Lord helped us through them, or whatever. So the question is, right, there's no question of prayer for the dead, uh, there's no question of being baptised on behalf of the dead, so what on earth is Paul going on about here? Now, what I'm going to tell you, I have never ever come across before. I've never met anyone else who says this. So I'm sticking my neck out, alright? But nevertheless, I think this is what the answer to it is. And it's simply a question of going back into the Greek. You see, you've got to follow Paul's argument. He's simply saying, look, it is obvious that the dead are raised. And he's saying, if Christians cannot look forward to being raised when they die, what is the point of being a Christian? 
Can you see? So Paul is arguing that one, if there's no life after death at all, well, I mean, that makes us nutters, doesn't it? Because, I mean, we, we suffer persecution, we, we fight against our own sin, we make sacrifices. And if the result of that is that when we die, boom, that's it, nothingness, he says, well, I mean, we of all men are to be pitied. That's what Paul says. But alternatively, I ask you this, and this is an example where Christians are more spiritual than the Bible. You see, because the traditional idea of eternity, life beyond death, is, is, is sort of like disembodied spirits floating around with harps and stuff like that. Now, I, I know that that is kind of satirising it a lot, but nevertheless, that has been the kind of... Very few Christians, I mean, you all do now, you know in detail what happens when you die, because we've done it here, but very few Christians really know what happens when they die. And, and, and there's always been this kind of idea that it's come some sort of spiritual, uh, non-physical, non-solid kind of existence, which, when you're not in a super-spiritual mood, you really have got to admit, is quite boring. There's not a lot to look forward to in an eternity being a disembodied spirit floating around in heaven, whatever heaven is, is there, you see. So here, Paul is also combating that idea. He's saying the idea of nothingness when we die, well, I mean, that just makes us a load of nutters, doesn't it? But the idea of being uh, disembodied spirits in eternity, you know, sort of kind of wafting around, playing our harps in praise to God, I mean, Paul wasn't very impressed with that either, you see. And what he's doing, he's showing that nothing other than the resurrection of the dead is what we have been promised as Christians. Anything else would be a desperate disappointment. And it would be, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be desperately disappointing? Because God has created us as physical beings. We're created in the image of God, the second person of the Trinity has always been a physical being, alright, so therefore, for us to be made in the image of God is a literal thing, to be physical is part of what a human being is, therefore, for God to save a human being, the end result of that human being being saved is that he's got to still be physical, and of course the point is that we will one day be physical in glorified bodies just like Jesus had, that is the glory of the gospel. We will be not less physical then, we will be more physical then. Can you see what I'm saying? So therefore, at an eternity in physical form is what God always planned for us. And Paul is going through, you know, he's using every argument he can think of to show the Corinthians how stupid it would be if that wasn't the case. Now then, let's turn to this little argument, alright, because he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? Why am I in peril every hour? So can you see what Paul's saying here? He says, look, if there's nothing after life, he says, why am I bothering to be in peril all the time? It's daft, isn't it? I mean, if I'm not going to get something out of it, it's not really worth it, is it, you see? Now, when he talks about people, uh, people being baptised on behalf of the dead, what you've got to understand is that in the Greek, that phrase, on behalf of, can also mean in the place of. Now, if you think about it, take the two phrases, in the place of and on behalf of. Jesus died on our behalf because he died in our place. Can you see? The two concepts are linked. But on the other hand, it's not always the case that if someone does something on your behalf, they do it in your place. Can you see? So the point is that here, this phrase, on behalf of, can quite legitimately, in the Greek, mean in the place of. 
And what I'm going to put to you is that that is how they should have translated this passage from the Greek. Now, if we have that translation, listen to what happens. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised in place of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptised in their place? Why am I in peril every hour? Now, I want you to see what Paul is thinking of here, and you've got to understand the situation he's in. In these days, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Christians were dropping like flies. And they were dropping like flies because they were Christians. In the Roman Empire, you could believe any religion you wanted, you could have any faith you wanted, as long as you worshipped Caesar as God. So you got on fine with the Romans. Remember, the Romans were like the world power. You got on fine with the Romans. You could do what you like, believe what you like, as long as at least every now and then you worshipped the Roman Empire as God. Now, can you see that was the one thing that two groups of people would not do? The first group were the Jews. And the second group were the Christians. That, wouldn't sh you know, that shouldn't surprise us, because the God of the Jews is our God, the God of Israel. So therefore, because the church, the Christians, would not worship Caesar as God, many of them, hundreds of them, were massacred through the Romans. And they were being persecuted in general, in a very violent society. So therefore, to be a Christian was to be physically in danger. And when Paul says, why am I in peril every hour? He meant it. You're not. I'm not. We're not in peril every hour. We couldn't write this to a friend. But the Christians in Russia could. Can you see? That for these people, for Paul at this time and all the Christians, they never knew when they might have to die as a result of being Christians. Therefore, the Christians were dropping like flies. Now then, why is it that therefore they weren't all killed off. Well, I'll tell you, because more Christians, were, more people were being born again than were dying. Can you see what I mean? Because the Holy Spirit was moving in such power, the point was that you topped three Christians and four got converted the next day, can you see? So therefore they could never get rid of the Christians. So that what you had, and remember, Paul often spoke in military terms. Alright? You know, like the army of the Lord put on the armour of God. So the picture you've got is that constantly Christians were dying and people were getting converted and replacing them. Can you see? The army of the Lord was never extinguished. Because for every soldier who was put out of action, the Lord brought another unbeliever to himself who took over. Can you see? So the church was never dying off then, at this time, because they were so faithful to the Lord that for every three Christians who died, four, four people got converted. Now then, therefore, bearing that in mind, what Paul's saying? Baptism. We're saying, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised in the place of the dead? For the early church, unlike us today, what was the first thing that happened to someone when they got converted? They got baptised. It was the first thing that happened to them. There was none of this waiting around. We saw this. We've done studies here about baptism. No baptism classes. Uh, no kind of things in place of baptism. You know, sort of confirmation and all the rituals that, that churches have today. You became a Christian and you were baptised. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't have believed you were a Christian until you got baptised. And I would say to someone, look, if you're not willing 
to obey the first commandment that God ever gives you. Well, no, the first one is believe on Jesus. The second one is be baptised. So if you've got someone who's not even willing to obey the second commandment that Jesus gives them, how seriously can you take their conversion? Can you see? So in the early church, they got converted and they got baptised. It was, it was synonymous. You, you know, you could hardly separate conversion and baptism. It was separated by however long it took to get to water. <laughs> All right. So therefore, when you got converted in the early church... The, own, the, the delay up until you got baptised was decided by how far the nearest amount of water was. It, it was done as quickly as possible. So therefore, what else happens when someone gets converted? Well, they come, they start fighting in the Lord's army. We've sung tonight, you know, I, we hear the sound of the army of the Lord, that they're in God's army, all right? They're foot soldiers, they put on the armour of God. So what happens is that for someone who got converted and therefore baptised and enlisted in the Lord's army, the truth of the matter was that they were replacing another Christian who just dropped dead somewhere else because someone just cut his head off. Because the Romans were like that, you know, I mean, they weren't brilliant people, you know, I mean, I know loony left councils aren't brilliant, but they're not half as bad as the Romans were, you know, you never knew how long you were going to keep your head if you were a Christian. So can you see that what Paul is saying, his whole argument has been to say, look, of course there's physical life for us after death, we're going to be raised from the dead and given a physical body. Anything less than that would be a massive disappointment, because he's saying anything less than that, and what are we, then what are we doing in this spiritual warfare. Can you see? He says, no, we're, we're expecting everything that Jesus has promised us, and that to settle for anything less than that, you'd just be silly. And I mean, who? I mean, but there, there are nutters out there who do this. Who is going to enrol in a faith or a religion that's really tough if it's not promising you eternal life in a physical body? Can you see only a twit and enrol in something like that? Because they're committing their whole lives to it and there's no expectation that there's anything in it for them in eternity. So all Paul's saying, look, for heaven's sake, all these people who are getting converted, I mean, they're going to be risking their lives now that they're Christians. Of course there's going to be resurrection for, from the dead for them afterwards. And he says, in actual fact, their baptism means that they are replacing a Christian who has just died, but that Christian is one day going to be raised from the dead, the same way that when this Christian who's replaced them dies, they will be raised from the dead as well. So can you see that, given that the Greek here can mean on behalf of or in the place of, can you see the idea that Paul's saying that when someone in these circumstances, when they got converted and therefore baptised, they were the replacement for another Christian who Satan had just knocked off. And so the numbers in the army were kept up to what the Lord needed. Now can you see that Paul's not talking about baptism doing anything from the dead. He's simply saying that when someone gets converted and baptised, then in the sense of being in the ranks in the Lord's army, they are replacing. Their baptism is the sign of joining the army, and they are actually taking the place of another Christian who's died somewhere, so that the, the numbers are kept up. But the whole argument is that for heaven's sake, we, in eternity, are expecting physical resurrection in glorified bodies. And he said, and if that isn't the case, oh, what a letdown. So he's saying, the Bible teaches it, that you're going to be raised from the dead, and eternity in a physical body. He says, therefore, given that the Bible says that that is the case, what, what a twit to not actually believe it, and to settle either the idea of nothingness when you die, or floating around like a disembodied spirit. Who, who was Christ preaching to then when he went into the book? That was the other one I was going to. Go to Peter.
Peter. Because the only other verse that some people do turn to, and again for most people here this is revision, we've done all this before, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, and Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Now here is a reference to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, remember he was three days and three nights in the centre of the earth. And most of that time, he was in paradise, the believer's compartment. All right. But here, it's talking at the point that whilst he was in the centre of the earth, he preached to some spirits. And these spirits were the spirits who were then in prison and who had disobeyed God during the lead-up to the flood, All right, as God's patience waited in the time of Noah. Now, there are two things to understand. You see, because as we read this in English, and we're going to, it's back to the Greek, all right? Firstly, back to the Greek, and secondly, getting an understanding of the whole of Scripture, is that it rather looks to us the idea that Jesus is going and preaching the gospel to people who have died in Noah's time. Yep, that's what it looks like. It's not that at all. Firstly, this word preached is not a good translation. There are two Greek words that can get translated preach, but they have slightly different meanings. The first is evangelozo. Now, that's where we get the word evangelization from. And that Greek word means to preach or to proclaim the gospel, to preach something with a view to getting a response. And can you see, if you preach the gospel, if you preach a message, uh, socialists preach socialism because they want you to become a socialist. Conservatives preach conservatism because they want you to become a conservative. Can you see, they're preaching to you, they're proclaiming something to you, but with the express aim of it having an effect on you. Now, that is not the word used here for preached. The Greek word used here for preached is keroso, and that is a totally different Greek word, and it means simply a proclamation as of a town crier. The word keroso simply means to proclaim the truth about something. There is no meaning in the Greek word caruso, there is no hint of the idea that through that proclamation people might change their mind and go along with you. It simply means to tell the truth, to make a proclamation as in a town crier. Whereas evangelozo means to preach with a name, to getting a response. Now here, the word is simply caruso, it means a proclamation. There's no hint in the word that it's proclaiming something in order to have an effect on people, it's just talking about proclaiming. So Jesus makes a proclamation, but he makes it to spirits. To spirits. That is why people think that it's talking about dead people. Now the thing that you've got to understand is that you're not a spirit. I hope this isn't disappointing to you, and there are a lot of people who say that we are spirits. That's completely wrong. When the Bible talks about people, it refers to them as being souls. When God created Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breaths of lives. Do you remember right back at the beginning of the Salvation series, we went into all the Hebrew, and he became a living soul. We're not spirits, we're souls. 
We have spirits, but we are not spirits. And everywhere in the Bible, every other place where you get mention of spirits in the Bible, it is always referring to angels, be they goody angels who didn't fall, or be they the naughty angels who rebelled against God and are now demons or evil spirits. So in fact here, Jesus is proclaiming something to evil spirits. And these evil spirits are in prison because of something they did in the days of Noah. Now I'm not going to go into this in great detail because there are tapes you can get when we have covered this in great detail. But I'll cut a long story short and if people want to know more, order the tapes, alright. Because quite simply, what you've got here are the demons who in the time of Noah took on physical form, took on physical shape and bodies, and had sexual intercourse with human women, thus bringing about on the earth a half-breed being who was half-human, half-angel, but neither in particular. In Genesis 6, it speaks about the sons of God taking the daughters of men and having sex with them. And that's where the Nephilim, the giants, came from. The giants of old were mutations. They were genetic mutations brought about by angels taking on human bodies and mating with human beings. And of course, what lay behind this, what Satan was up to, is that everything Satan has done in history has been, able to, has been trying to stop Jesus. So up until Jesus died on the cross, Satan was always trying to stop Messiah accomplishing that. And he started, obviously, I mean, that's why there was always people hating Israelites and trying to kill off Israelites. Because if there was no Israel, Messiah couldn't come because it was prophesied that Messiah would be a Jew. So if Satan could knock off the Jewish nation before the time for Messiah to come, Messiah wouldn't be able to come because there were no Jews who could bear him. Can you see? Who could bring him into the world? So everything Satan did was to try and stop Messiah coming. But there was something else that Satan knew as well. He knew that Messiah was going to be a human being. Therefore, during the time of Noah, the idea of these evil spirits interbreeding with females, human females, was that it was the first genetic engineering that ever happened. Because if they had been successful, the Nephilim, who were not truly human, would have eventually so genetically polluted the whole earth, there would not have been a human race here. And if there wasn't a human race, then Messiah couldn't come because Messiah has to be human. And Messiah had to be born to a human mother. Therefore, these evil spirits, they interbred, and this was just before the flood of Noah. In fact, it was because of what these sons of God did. And remember, in the Old Testament, sons of God always refers to angels. We've done that here before. That as the, in what they were doing here, as a result of this, God destroyed the earth. And with it, because he preserved one family who were human and untouched by this plague, alright, therefore the Nephilim and this mutant half-breed creation were destroyed with the rest of the world. And therefore, the God could... Pardon? There are references to Nephilim after that. And obviously, it seems that the answer to that was quite simply this, that somewhere, obviously, Noah had and his sons in their background must have had somewhere in their family their forebears this mutant strain must have affected them which meant that every now and then in the time after Noah's flood the mutant gene got through therefore you had an occasional giant an occasional 
Nephilim, alright? But the point was, it was Satan's attempt to genetically re-engineer the human race so they weren't the human race anymore. And then Messiah and salvation would have been thwarted. So what happened was, that in order to make sure that these evil spirits didn't do it again, God cast them down into Tartarus, the third compartment in the centre of the earth. If you go to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 4, uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, and Peter says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now remember, hell is not a biblical word. Every time your Bible uses the word hell, it'll have a little note and it'll give you the Greek word at the bottom. Hell is not a scriptural word, alright? And those of you, look, cast them into hell, there's a little note there, yes, what does it say at the bottom? Tartarus! Which is the third compartment in the centre of the earth, and in fact it's the bottomless pit. Alright, so these angels were cast down into Tartarus and kept there so they couldn't escape and they couldn't do that thing again. Now, therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished salvation. And in Colossians, it says that he made a public example of Satan. He triumphed over all the evil spirits. He made a laughing stock on them, of them on the cross. And the reason being, it was them who were trying so hard to put him there. And it was through Satan eventually manipulating the death of Jesus, Satan actually banged the last nail in his own coffin, you see. So therefore, the moment Jesus died, I mean, it was finished, salvation was accomplished, and Satan and every demon on the face of the earth knew that they'd been beaten. They were put to public disgrace because of what Jesus did. And then Jesus died, and remember he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus then went down with the thief on the cross into paradise, the believer's compartment, which contained all the Old Testament believers. And they were down there, without their bodies, but they were there with Abraham and, and all the patriarchs having a terrific time. And now Jesus goes down and he joins them for three days and for three nights. Down? Down in the centre of the earth, that's what the Bible teaches. So the point is that now Jesus is in paradise, he's in the centre of the earth in the believer's compartment. And every demon on the face of the earth, along with Satan, knew that they'd been, been beaten. But that left a group of demons who didn't know that they'd been beaten because they weren't on the face of the earth. They were in Tartarus in the centre of the earth. So they didn't know that they'd lost. So while Jesus is down there in paradise with all the Old Testament saints, do you know what he does? He thinks, better tell them. So he zaps over to Tartarus and he proclaims the victory to the spirits. He says, you've lost. It's all over. Because the spirits in Tartarus didn't know what was happening on the earth. You see. So therefore, that is what the Bible means when it talks about these spirits in prison. It was Jesus telling those demons in Tartarus that they were beaten. And of course then, when Jesus ascended, and remember, Jesus didn't ascend for the first time at the ascension. The first time Jesus ascended was the morning he rose again from the dead. Within minutes of being raised from the dead, quick conflab with Mary, and then he ascended for the first time. And Jesus transferred paradise from the centre of the earth into heaven. And that's why now, when you and I die, we go to paradise, but it's not in the centre of the earth anymore, it's been transferred into heaven. So that is our destiny. So again, can you see that that verse has got nothing whatsoever to do with praying for the dead? Can you see any concept of praying for the dead, doing anything for the dead at all? Not only is it unscriptural, it is satanic.
it is satanic. Because it is occultism. The official, well, the, the, the Old Testament word and the Old English word for it is necromancy. And necromancy means having sort of like contact with the dead. Therefore, if you pray for the dead, you are, whether you like it or not, whether you mean to or not, you are committing necromancy and you will become demonized. And of course, it's very salutary to be aware that there are many, many things that go on in institutional churches which are blatantly spiritualistic. There are many, many authorities in the institutional church today who believe in earthbound spirits. Now, the idea of earthbound spirits is this. It's someone who has died, but for whatever reason, their spirit, they, they couldn't escape from earth to get to heaven. Because remember, many of the churches teach that everyone is just automatically saved. I mean, in the Church of England, if you've been baptised as a baby, you're born again, you're saved, you see. But they teach that you can become an earthbound spirit. So that you, you die, but something holds you on earth and you can't get to heaven. Alright? Now this is where the Anglican exorcists come in. Because the teaching is this. This is how they explain ghosts, psychic phenomena and poltergeists. They say, not that it's the work of demons, but it's the work of earthbound spirits, you see. So in they come, with their prayer book, with their holy water... And you know what they do? They release that spirit to God. Now that is occultism. That is occultism. It is totally and 100% unscriptural. It is forbidden by God. Now I don't, and, and this is rife in some parts of the Christian scene, particularly amongst Anglicans and Catholics. Because remember, these beliefs that I'm telling you about, they have their basis in high church Anglo-Catholicism. And there are many, many people involved in the charismatic movement who come from that school of belief. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard of a guy called Dr. Kenneth McCall. Has anyone heard of Dr. Kenneth McCall? Right. Now, Dr. Kenneth McCall is an accepted authority on demonism in many Christian circles. He is a Christian, Dr. Kenneth McCall. He's written books, and he is acknowledged as an authority on deliverance from spirits. Now, some years ago, he wrote a book called The Healing of the Family Tree. Now, bear in mind what I've just said about earthbound spirits and this coming from Anglo-Catholicism and High Church and all that. And in this book, what he teaches is this. Kenneth McCall does believe in evil spirits. He does. He is a Christian. But he also believes that Christians, and indeed non-Christians, can end up in bondage because the spirit of a dead person who was somehow involved with them won't let go of them. So he believes that, for instance, there could have been, say, that you might be having loads and loads of problems, you see, and, and you go to him for counselling, he'll seek the Lord, and there are various sort of areas he might approach. For instance, the Lord might tell him that the problem is unconfessed sin, and he'd be dead right. All right? In that instance, he's, that is fine, that's biblical. He might diagnose it, in inverted commas, as being that you are demonized by an evil spirit, and he'll cast it out in the name of Jesus. That is absolutely fine. But he might, and on hundreds of occasions have, diagnose that the problem 
is that someone who is dead will not let go of you. And that your psyche, your spiritual force, is being affected by the presence of this spirit, this ghost, of someone close to you or someone who hated you, someone who so hated you, they couldn't bear to be apart from you and wanted to torment you. Can you see? So Kenneth McCall teaches that you can actually become the victim of a ghost. And of course, in order to bring deliverance to you in the name of Jesus, he doesn't cast out evil spirits in that instance because he doesn't believe it's an evil spirit. He thinks it's a ghost of somebody. He will lay the ghost. He will perform a very high church type service to enable the spirit of that dead person to be able at last to be free and to go into God's hands. Now can you see this is dangerous stuff because it is getting mixed in with the charismatic movement. There is now satanic activity in the charismatic movement through false teaching. Now can you see how vital this is? And anything that has anything to do with the dead is absolute, just, it, it's, we are not to touch it. We are to have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But Satan, by deceiving Christians, is beginning to get occultism accepted amongst Christians. I'll give you another example. There are many Catholics who, when they get baptised in the Spirit, they testify that their devotion to Mary increases. That is satanic. If you ever wake up one morning and find that your devotion to the Virgin Mary and to the saints has increased, that is the result of an evil spirit working in you. Can you see what I mean? Because the Holy Spirit comes to glorify Mary? Jesus! Can you see? It's interesting, Richard Holloway who is the Bishop of uh, Edinburgh, is it, in the Anglican Church, he is a Bible-believing Christian. He doesn't act like one. He, he has fellowship with men who are utter heretics. He's disobedient to what the Bible teaches on that level. But he's starting a new series on television called Heaven on Earth, or, or When I Get to Heaven. That's right. And what he's doing is that he is going to be interviewing various celebrities, like I think this week it's Edna O'Brien, the Irish novelist, alright, and he's simply talking to them about their expectations of heaven, alright. In the second program of the series, he has, on his program, interviewing, on the subject, when I get to heaven, Michael Bentine. Now, Michael Bentine, as a comedian and a goon, is brilliant. I, I think he's great. But not so many people realise that Michael Bentine is a committed occultist and he is very involved with the procreation of spiritualism because he is in touch with certain dead people and this has given him such hope that he actually is involved in the propagation of necromancy and Richard Holloway a bishop of the Church of England is interviewing him on his program about expectations of heaven now can you see what Satan is doing Satan is working on all levels to break down our resistance to satanic power. And the first step is to get respected church leaders who are genuine Christians being open to occultism. Then, if you, as a little nobody foot soldier sitting in your pew, say anything about it, you get told off because, well, great, you know, more mature Christians than you think it's all right. Now, can you see what Satan's doing? 
He's eating away our defences. And our defence is the word of God. And it does not matter what anyone else thinks. The word of God is the final authority. But believe me, there is a flood of occultism. I came across just the other day um, a leaflet from an organisation which is definitely Christian. The people involved in this Christian ministry are definitely Christian. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. But in the literature that they put out about what they believe God has called them to do, they say that a particularly effective way that they have found to bring deliverance to people from evil spirits is by the use of holy water and ancient prayers which they say work very powerfully. These ancient prayers consist of taking water and taking salt. What you do is this, and it's done in the form of a service. You firstly pray over the water. And the prayer is that the, the prayer acknowledges the water as being a creature. And the prayer is, we pray for this creature, water. Now can you see, we're back into paganism. We're back into nature religion now. They then go on to cast any evil power in the water out. Now when you get believing that evil power can occupy inanimate matter, that is called animism, which is one of the most depraved and satanic religions that the world has ever seen. So then, you have prayed for this creature, water, that, any, that the evil spirit in it will be cast out. And this is all to Father in the name of Jesus. And then you pray that God's blessing will come upon this water and it will become holy. You then pray for the creature, salt. Alright? And having prayed for the creature, salt, you then cast out any demons that there are in that. You then mix them together in the same way that Elisha... Do you remember when Elisha went to Jericho, the waters had got poisoned? Alright? And uh, they told him about it, and Elisha said, bring me salt. And of course, salt in the Bible is a picture of the life of Jesus. That's why we are salt of the world, aren't we? Because it's Jesus, Jesus in us, being the salt of the world. And Elisha threw salt into the water and the waters were healed, you see. And of course it was a picture of the new life and healing that God and Jesus is God brings. But in this prayer, you then mix the water with the salt like Elisha did. So all the time, can you see, I mean this is couched in sufficiently biblical language to try and take you in. Once the salt and the water has been mixed together, it is now holy water. If there are demons present in any one or anything that that water touches, the demon has to go. Now I will tell you what that is. That is called magic. In the literature, the reason they give for this being so effective is because the prayers are so powerful. It's magic. Magic is the manipulation of matter by incantation, by words, by spells. And this spell, even though it's all in the name of Jesus, it is nevertheless magic. And of course the thing is that when people practice magic, the power comes from the fact that because they're doing something forbidden in the Bible, therefore evil spirits are released. And it's the evil spirits who make the things happen. That's why it works.
Now, all I'm trying to do is to show you that that was in the literature of a ministry which is accepted and respected worldwide and is becoming very, very big in this country. It does not mean that everything that organization does and believes is wrong. Of course it doesn't. But can you see the gullibility and the shallowness of knowledge of the Word of God when mature Christians get taken in by that? And that what they actually do is they encourage you to use that prayer and to do it because they say it works. Now can you see, nowadays you can start subscribing to someone's ministry and as much as you're getting blessed where their ministry is right, you can be being, end up being demonised. Can you see what Satan's trying to do? He's trying to mix occultism in with Christianity. And of course, in the last 20 years, because of the charismatic movement, because we have rediscovered the baptism and gifts of the Spirit, because of that, we now accept the supernatural, and that is good. What is bad is that we haven't yet learned to accept the supernatural conditionally. Many Christians still labour under the idea that if it works, and if it's done by a Christian, therefore it's God. That is rubbish. That is not true at all. You test signs and wonders by the Bible. And if they are not strictly conforming to what the Bible teaches about signs and wonders, then you have satanic signs and wonders happening, even though the people who have become channels are genuine Christians. This is the reality of it, and we have got to learn to be a lot more, or a lot less gullible, and to test people, and to test ministries, and to test fellowships, and to test churches, by nothing other than the Word of God. We do not ask, is it fun? We do not ask, is it lively? We do not ask, is it exciting? We do not ask if it is supernatural, because everything I've just told you can be provided by evil spirits. No problem. We ask, is it biblical? And if it isn't biblical, then we are in danger. And we are in danger because that is how evil spirits get into the church and then destroy the church by deceiving the church from the inside. Yeah, did you? Yeah. yeah there's the uh, raising of Samuel's spirit by the witches and all. Right. And Joseph's uh, divine covenant. The scripture seems to accept. Well, in the case of Joseph's divine covenant, it seems to accept it. Oh, no, no. You've got to realise that in the Old Testament, you see, something is occult when you're into things like formulas, when something works because it's a formula. Now, the point is that God, because he's, omnis you know, because he's omnipotent, he can do what he likes. If in any one instance, if he wants to actually communicate to one of his people through what a cup does, God's allowed to do it. Can you see what I mean? The question is whether or not you are responding to something because God is telling you to, or whether or not you're responding to it because you think that by using that technique you'll get somewhere. Do you remember the ephod? The uh, high priest in the Old Testament had an ephod. The Bible doesn't tell us how it works, interestingly enough. The Bible doesn't tell us how it works. But through this ephod, which was a thing that he wore, God spoke at certain times to Israel through the high priest, through the ephod. Don't know how it works, the Bible doesn't say. But when you get onto the story of Gideon, and Gideon's story is uh, very interesting, because Gideon's problem was that he never grew up in the Lord. 
And we know that Gideon never grew up in the Lord because the only guidance he would accept was, was supernatural guidance. He was a signs and wonders man, all right? He was kind of, well, Lord, if you want this to happen, or, or if, if this is your will, I want that, 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 and that, you know, and that to happen. Now, because he was such a baby Christian, when he asked God to sort of do the fleece, and he laid out a fleece, and, and I mean, he shouldn't have done it, it was wrong. He wasn't laying a fleece out because he had faith. He was laying, laying the fleece out because he had so much unbelief. Because what he said to God is he laid the fleece out, and he said, if what you have told me is going to come to pass, may this happen. Can you see? He didn't have any doubts that God had told him. He had doubts that God was going to keep his promise. Now, that is called unbelief, you see. So, so I mean, he, he never got beyond this kind of, you know, sort of like, um, you know, what if this is right, make so-and-so for me. Can you see? He, he never learned to hear the law for himself. It always had to be through all this external signs and wonders. I'm not saying God never uses external stuff. I'm not saying God never uses it. But I'm saying that, that, that to be in dependence on it is, is crazy. And again, it's dangerous, you see. Because whereas God will honour you when you're a young Christian, the point is, at what point... Does God stop doing it and demons keep it happening? Can you see? And then again, you end up being led by demons, you see. Again, guidance is primarily through the word of God and through the witness of the Spirit, through our accountability and submission to each other. That's how guidance primarily comes. But old Gideon never really learned this. Now, what's interesting is that in his later life, Gideon got hold of this ephod, and he wouldn't let the ephod go. It really meant everything to him. Now, why would the ephod mean so much to Gideon? I'll tell you, because through the ephod at certain times, God spoke supernaturally to his people. They couldn't make it happen. It happened when God wanted it to. But here's Gideon. Oh, great, you know, I've got a hotline to God like, all right? And, uh, and of course, it was wrong that he should want that. He didn't need the ephod, he had the Lord. But what's interesting is that Israel ended up worshipping that ephod. And the Bible said that the ephod became a snare to Gideon and his family. Because, can you see what happened? He turned something that was occasionally genuine into occultism, into an idol, into something satanic, you see. So, the point about God, like, you know, sort of doing Benjamin's cut stuff, that's no problem. The problem is when people are using things as if the power is in the things. I mean, it's the same way Christians, they say, right, if we use this technique, it will work. That also is occultism. There are no techniques. You go as the Lord leads you. Do you see what I mean? Anything of techniques that is all finally occultism and it's Satan and evil spirits who get in amongst us when we do it. We are to follow the leading of the Lord in accordance with the scripture. Now the thing about Samuel, indeed Samuel was the one exception that proves the rule. Because Samuel, notice he came up through the earth, didn't he? Why? Well, because it was Old Testament time, before Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended. Therefore, the place the believer's compartment was in the centre of the earth. So in order for Samuel to appear again, he had to come up, didn't he? Because he was in the centre of the earth. It was the only way to do it, to come up, you see. But the point was, the witch of Endor, no, when Samuel appeared, no one was more surprised than the witch of Endor. Because the witch of Endor knew that she dealt in evil spirits, but she was pretending that they were the spirits of dead people. Can you see? The witch of Endor knew it was evil spirits. But she was leading people on, and then when a genuine spirit of a departed person comes, she, she was t it was the last thing she was expecting. So the point is that Samuel's appearance is the one exception that proves the rule. Can you see? Because again, that, was, that happened purely because God made it happen. Can you see what I mean? 
So again, one couldn't use something like that as an argument to say that the Bible is in favour of occultism or anything like that. From start to finish, the Bible is absolutely opposed to occultism and anything that is occultism. This incidentally is why you will not find any techniques in the Bible. Whether you go to conferences about healing, whether you go to conferences about counselling, whether you go to conferences about deliverance, you know, casting evil spirits out, the moment that you are taught a technique, you are being deceived. And you are being taught that technique by someone who has been deceived. There are no techniques in the Bible. And the reason there isn't, and when I say this, it'll be very, very clear to you, the reason that there are no techniques in the Bible is because the battle is the Lord's. The power is God's. The only reason that you need a technique is when you think you might fail. That is why salesmen are taught techniques, and it's quite valid out there in the world. Can you see? But when a Christian uses a technique to do the will of the Lord, that is just them saying, I don't trust the Lord to do it. Can you see, you won't find techniques in the Bible, they are not there. I mean, it's like a quick example, in the Acts of the Apostles, there were times when God's power for healing was so upon the believers that even if people got a hold of Paul's you know, handkerchief, I mean, he might be walking past and they know that Jesus was with Paul and Jesus was, you know, was with Peter. And as an act of faith, they knew if they touched these men, Jesus would heal them. You see, that was their faith. Even though they weren't Christians, they were given faith to believe that Jesus would heal them. You see. Now the point is that when you've got enough hundred people who want to be healed, you can't lay hands on them all. It takes too long. All right. So what they were doing, they saw some who were receiving the laying on of hands and Jesus were healing them. So what they started doing is, well, let's have his handkerchief. So Paul would walk past and they'd, they'd grab his handkerchief and they were healed. Why? Because grabbing Paul's handkerchief was, was the expression of their faith in Jesus, you see. Or if they managed to crawl under Peter's shadow, they were healed. Because that was their act of faith in Jesus. Just because Jesus was so present to heal in those circumstances. So therefore, we can understand why they were healed just by touching the apostles' handkerchiefs. All right? But is that not a million miles away from these jokers... And normally you have to send them money. And they will send you an anointed handkerchief that they have prayed over. And if you touch whatever part of your body is sick with this handkerchief, Jesus will heal you. Now if I'm taking the mick out of it, I'm doing it deliberately, that is rubbish. But it's not only rubbish, it's dangerous. Because can you see, you then have the situation where Christians are saying that the transferal of divine power comes through a handkerchief. And remember, usually, the important thing about that handkerchief is that the big man at the top of the pyramid or the organisation has prayed over it. Can you see we're into occultism there? It's merely techniques. And it's only gullible people who get taken in by it. If you need healing, why do you need someone, and most of them are in America, why do you need to write off you know, to America to get an American handkerchief or an American preach? Can you see how stupid it is? If Jesus is with you, and if there are other believers, the Bible says lay hands on the sick. It don't say post them a handkerchief. Yeah, now, can, can you, you know, are you starting to get the idea of this? That again we're seeing that when you take the Bible, you're safe. But many of the practices that, that now are, they, they're just accepted by Christians. They're accepted. You can go to people who have these so-called healing of the memories, sort of, 
you know, they'll, they'll sort of like, they've got this special ministry for healing of the memories. And they might discover that you got problems now because when, when you were sort of like the third day after you were conceived, mum and dad had a row. Now, that, that emotional negativism in your mum and dad, that, that kind of got through to you, you see, and it needs healing. And they've got special techniques that they can use. A lot of emphasis on heavy breathing. It's really, you know, uh, just yesterday I was listening to a tape by a woman who's got one of these healing of the memories things, and the tape was of her doing a mass thing, all right, and she, she started off with everyone with their eyes closed and breathing in very deeply, very slowly, and just concentrating on your breathing. Now, shall I tell you what happens if you do that? Your brain gets over-oxygenated and it causes a slight drunkenness. It's a fact. That's why if someone needs oxygen, if you give them too much, I mean, they're singing choruses. Can you see? It's a technique that brings the body into a receptive frame of mind, much like alcohol would, and it's dangerous. And then she had them all using their imaginations, and can you see Jesus doing this now? Can you see the Holy Spirit doing that? But if your problem was that on the third day after you were conceived, that you had a traumatic experience, I mean, we're talking about five cells here. Alright? And these five cells, I mean, yeah, a human being, but at the stage of just that beginning, these, these five or six little cells have had a traumatic experience. Alright? So then you go to them and they, they take you into this healing routine. Now, you actually end up in something akin to a trance. Because your eyes are shut, you're ultra relaxed, and you're getting vision after vision after vision. And the whole thing is being taken along. And you go back, you travel back in time, in this vision, and you actually go back to the time when you, as a little five-celled fetus, have this traumatic experience. And you visualise Jesus coming into healing. Now, the giveaway with the healing of the memories is quite simply this. It could have only happened in the last hundred years. And I'll tell you why. Because that's how long Freudian psychoanalysis has been around. Many of the healing, psychological and emotional healing techniques that Christians are using today are straight out of Freudian and Jungian psychoanalytical theory. They have nothing to do with the Bible, they have everything to do with modern psychology. But the important thing to remember is this, the presuppositions of psychiatry today, the presuppositions of psychological theory are totally anti-scriptural. So Christians have built a system of counselling on totally unscriptural presuppositions and they're saying the Holy Spirit is using it. And, and this is absolutely crazy. Can you see? Now my question is this. We meet people. We, we've all got our emotional hang-ups. Yeah, of course we have. God needs to do an emotional work in us. Of course. And some of the emotional work he wants to do in us is the fact that we have problem nows because of things we've experienced in the past. No problem with that. But I'll tell you something else. Paul the Apostle met people like that as well. They haven't just happened in the last hundred years. Now, the thing is this. What did the early church do when they met people who needed ministry for emotional problems? Did they use the counselling techniques we use today? The answer is no, because they were 1900 years before Freud came along. And Freud was a total, yeah, I mean, sort of Freud was a, a, you know, Freudianism is a doctrine of demons, as surely as evolution 
and things like that. It's a doctrine of demons. Now, my question is this. The early church did without it because they didn't have it. Why do we need it today? Are we really going to say that we've got an advantage over the early church? I would suggest to you that if that's the case, that is a dangerous heresy. Because we're saying that God has given us necessary revelation in the 20th century that he withheld in this book. No, that, that, is, that is absolutely satanic. So you've either got to say that we've got an advantage, we've got something from God they didn't have, which we haven't, alright? But if you then say, oh no, no, it's not that, we're not saying that we've got something, you know, that they needed but didn't have. And my reply is, well, if you haven't, what do you need it for then? If it's no advantage, what are you doing with it? Why are you playing around with it? Can you see, I mean, for heaven's sake, we are called to be so disciples for Jesus. We are not called to be amateur psychoanalysts. We are not called to be little clones of the latest healer who hits the scene. We are called to be disciples of Jesus and to live in obedience to what the Bible says. If we do that, the Lord will be teaching us what we need to know. But we have got to be free of all these accretions that we've ended up with because they are dangerous. Can you see? Now, when we talk about Catholics getting baptised in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives them a greater reverence for Mary, well, we can see, th you know, I mean, that is obviously satanic, isn't it? Well, I mean, what about that ministry who use all the holy water? Not Catholic, sorry, not Catholic, much closer to home. Episcopal, Anglican, sorry. Can you see that now these things are normative? in the charismatic movement. This is, is the great danger. Yeah, sure. What do you say about word of knowledge then? Word of knowledge, absolutely no problem at all. In the sense that, if someone comes to me with a problem, and the Lord gives me, you know, a knowledge that this problem is, is partly to do with this, and then I tell them something that they couldn't know, and it might be something to do with their past, that's no problem. But that's, that's not what I'm talking I mean, about. I know people are using word of knowledge techniques and the inner healing techniques that you say are wrong. Oh yeah, that's right. Because remember, if you're using a technique which is wrong and unscriptural, if we're doing anything that is unbiblical, to that extent we step outside of God's protection. Not that we can lose salvation or anything like that at all, but we step outside of the protection of God and we open ourselves to being deceived. Therefore, the point is that when you get ministries which are totally unbiblical, the fact that they work tells us nothing except that they work. Now, for instance, uh, I'll give you an example. When a Catholic, alright, when a Catholic priest lays hands on a Catholic nun in the name of Mary, and the Catholic nun, they're both Christians, they're technically born again, and the Catholic nun starts singing in tongues, speaking in tongues, praising Mary, it's worked, hasn't it? But that supernatural experience wasn't the Holy Spirit, it's satanic, it's what demons are doing. And this is the great danger, the fact that something works doesn't mean it's right, because demons can affect things yes, in the same way the Holy Spirit. Why should they do that? Because they want to deceive us. And more than anybody else, they I want to deceive God's people. Right, because if someone is healed through the activity of a demon thinking it was Jesus, they above all else are deceived. Can you see? This is why when spiritualists, spiritualists will lay, I mean, we were speaking to a neighbour last night telling her about Jesus, and she and her husband were talking about when a friend of theirs who's a spiritualist came in and using words of knowledge ministered healing to them, and it worked. 
Now, can you see that was demons doing it? Now, in the same way that demons did that... But spiritualists bring, go back to the dead, don't they? I mean, people who do inner healing don't go back to the dead. They call on Jesus. Yeah, but the techniques they're using, and you see, a lot of white magic uses the name of Jesus. You see, the name of Jesus isn't a charm. Anyone can use the name of Jesus. Do you remember when the sons of Sceva in the Bible, they tried to, to sort of cast demons out of somebody, and they said, we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, and they got beaten up. And you see, the thing is, using the name of Jesus itself doesn't mean anything at all. Because anybody... Believe, it? No, it doesn't. It depends whether or not what you're doing. I mean, take Kenneth McCall. Kenneth McCall will minister to people, Christians, and he's a Christian, spiritual Christian. Now, he will minister to you in the name of Jesus to, to get this, this ghost of a dead person, their spirit, off of you and to go back to God. Now, he does that in the name of Jesus. Does that make it right? Or is what he's doing satanic? Can you see what he's doing is satanic? The fact that he's doing it in the name of Jesus is that makes it Satan's pièce de résistance. Can you see? If Satan can get us doing things that are wrong, thinking that they're right and God's leading us to, this is why we need all the time to come back to what the Bible teaches. Because we know that the early church would not have used these inner healing techniques. How, if, how did the early church heal them? They asked the Lord to do it. You see, they didn't have techniques. They just asked the Lord to do it. They didn't have conferences, learning how to counsel, or, or learning you know, how to pray for the sick. They just got on and did it, and they sought the Lord and studied the scriptures. And Jesus just brought it about in their midst. Can you see, that's the difference between techniques and going according to what the Bible says, you see. Otherwise, you just end up copying people. And if you do something, you see, the point is magic says that uh, this inanimate matter is somehow going to change just, just because we say so. Can you see? And the, the technique you're using, it the technique you're using, or for the magician, the words, the spell they, they speak, that is the means whereby the process happens and the, the miracle, even though it's satanic, works. Now, we know that because they're practicing magic which is forbidden, it's the magic which gives a channel for evil spirits to do it and bring the desired result. Now, in exactly the same way, if Christians start doing practices which are totally unscriptural, you can have exactly the same thing happening, that they end up on Satan's ground and open themselves to evil spirits, and evil spirits can bring about the um, desired result, no problem you see, and people do testify in that book by that guy who does this, he'll get the ghost off you it's packed full, as are all these books of testimonies from Christians who say it works If they were, that's the subtlety of it if the books weren't packed full of testimonies from other Christians saying it works, who'd try it? the subtlety is that there are Christians who have gone to Kenneth McCall with real problems he has said, the problem you've got is that your spirit is all mixed up with the spirit of someone from your past who's dead. They won't let go of you. We've got to perform a service, and it's an Anglican service that he uses from the prayer book. He uses this service to lay the ghost. To, that earthbound spirit is enabled through the use of prayer, laying on of hands, holy water. Do you see how it all ties up? Is enabled to break free of earth and get at last into heaven. Whether or not the person who died was a Christian or not doesn't enter into it, because if they were baptised as a baby, then they go to heaven. But can you see, and these Christians who go to him with these, you know, they come out of that ministry and their problems are gone. And they have visions of Jesus. Oh, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus and, and, and he took the ghost of Auntie Mary and he just said, now, now go home. 
how can you see? Yeah, they're visions, but they're demonic visions. In the same way that when Catholics get baptised in the Spirit and have visions of Mary, and, and it's all satanic, you see. And this is why. Now, I'll just read you one bit from the Bible, but, but just to show you, I mean, am I scaremongering? Yes, because I'm like Paul. Can you see? Paul was a scaremonger. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, and remember, we are later now, you know, than the Reformation or, or the early church, in later times, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about believers here. Unbelievers can't depart from the faith because they haven't, they're not in the faith. He says some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits, and the Greek is seducing, seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So what Paul is saying, that, I mean, in order for, the, for Satan to neutralize the church, he can only do that from the inside. And he does it by getting his power on the inside of the church and believers accepting that power as being Jesus and therefore continuing doing things that the Bible teaches against, thinking that they're doing what Jesus wants, you see. And uh, so the warnings are there that in, you know, in the last days, and I mean, you know, we are in them. I mean, whether the rapture is tomorrow or in 200 years, either way, we're in the last days, aren't we, you see? And so therefore, we know that evil spirits are going to seduce Christians by introducing doctrines which come not from the Bible, but which come from them. They make these doctrines up. Who made up what Kenneth McCall is preaching? Satan made it up. Can you see? It's a doctrine of demons. Who made evolution up? Satan did. Who thought of Freudian psychology? Satan did. Can you see? It's not the people who thought of it. It's the doctrines of demons. And if Satan can get these doctrines of demons in the church, well then obviously that is the most effective thing for him to do. Not if they're healing Christians. Well no, demons can heal. I mean, how do spiritualists heal people? It's not Jesus doing it, is it? It's demons. Yes, I agree so therefore, I mean, I have known of Christians who do get involved in the occult. It happens. Is this the demons and wanting to get Christians away from Jesus and making them believe in the demons? Well, okay. it's it's not. It's it's a question of getting the Christians sidetracked, opening themselves to satanic power, and going off in every direction under the sun other than the one that the Lord's telling them to. Because God only blesses in real power through our obedience to the Bible. Therefore, to the extent that Satan gets us living in disobedience to the Bible, to that extent the power of Jesus is neutralised through his church. I mean, this is why, um, I mean, for so many people, I mean, it's like, say, with the healing of the memories thing. I mean, it's interesting, again, just last night I was talking to someone, and he's had it done on him, you see, and I said, did it work? And he said, no, but I didn't have the art to tell him. You see, and it's why it's so arbitrary. There's no guarantee. It only works if you tie into it. And believe me, some Christians, if you try to do it on them, they sit there giggling. I mean, they're fighting to keep a straight face, but they don't want to upset you. And I've met Christians who have gone along with the counsellor. And they've said, do you feel better now? And they say yes, but they don't really, nothing, you know, can you see they've just sat there giggling, but they don't want to upset the counsellor. Whereas other people, the, the imaginative type, the type who are susceptible to demons, the type of people that if they weren't converted, they would be in the occult. They love it. Can you see there's a bent in their sinful nature? So they can't wait to get counselled, 
And not only that, they can't wait to do it for somebody else. Uh, I remember the first time, in fact, this guy, he was a leader of a church, all right? And he and his wife went on one of these prayer counseling weekends, you see, um, you know, to learn all about it. Um, anyway, they came back, and I was at a Bible study a couple of days after they came back. Now then, what struck me was this. Not only did they now have no more problems because they had been prayer counseled, but they knew enough to do it to the rest of us so that we wouldn't have any emotional problems. Oh, I'll tell you, you didn't, you, know, you, you didn't see me for dust, my feet didn't. I said, no way, you coming near me. I mean, I could just see through it. Can you see the arrogance? It just doesn't ring true, does it? Where is the helplessness? Where is the, well, crumbs, if the Lord don't, if the Lord don't sort this one out, it's not going to get sorted out. That's true faith. Not when you see, I mean, someone comes to you and they've got a problem. Oh, yes, that's right. Now, plan B. I mean, that, that isn't faith. No, no. I but that's what they do. But, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're praying with someone and, and, and you get a word of knowledge, that's from Jesus. And that, that sorts the problem out for that person. If, if you're praying with somebody and the Lord shows you something that they need to know and you tell them and they say, yes, that is true, no problems with that at all. But the point is, it's when words of knowledge become an integral part of an activity which isn't scriptural. Can you see the difference? So, that, I mean, sometimes people come to Blinder and I. Now, I mean, we don't counsel people. We don't believe in counselling. All right. I mean, I, I wouldn't want you to counsel me, and I'm not going to counsel you. And the reason I don't want you to counsel me is that I don't want to be someone who needs counselling. I want to be Beresford. And if I've got problems, it'd be great if you listened. Can you see why I say Blinge and I don't counsel people? They just come round, they put their feet up, and we, we have fun, we get to know them, and in time, what they need to say comes out. And I mean, there are no techniques, and people go away from our place, having come there in dreadful condition, leaving away with the joy of the Lord, scratching their head, trying to work out how it happened, because we didn't counsel them. Can you see? That's the right way, because Jesus does it through our fellowship. All right. But you see, the point is that if people come to us, and, and I mean, we're just chatting, sometimes you just, not always, not always, but every now and then you just know something. I mean, once we were with a couple of friends up in Suffolk, and I mean, this don't happen to me very much, because God don't use me in this kind of way very much, but we were just praying with this woman. She'd been married for a few years, and uh, sort of no children or anything like that. And we were praying with her, and, and, and the Lord gave me a word of knowledge. And I just said, broken heart, all right? Now, it immediately, she burst into tears. I thought, oh, I upset her now. <laughs> she burst into tears, you see. And, and she, what happened was, her parents had divorced. She had never been at peace emotionally, because she felt half her heart went with her father, half her heart went with her dad. And the reason they were childless was because she didn't have the security to have children in case their family, i.e. her and her husband, broke up as well. So we just prayed, asked the Lord to do it, and the next thing she did was get pregnant. Now, yeah, words and knowledge, no problem. But we weren't sitting there taking her back to the day of the divorce. And can, you know, can you see the total difference between these things? No techniques, we just let the Lord do it. But there are no techniques. Shall we? I think this is Yeah, right, okay. Right. Okay, for those listening to the tape, this is officially the end. <laughs> yeah, but if, if you, you know, if people want to, to keep diving in, do. I mean, coffee will just keep coming. Ooh. What about the, the, these cures? What about the efficacy of them? Will they last? Uh, will they do any harm? Oh, if they're demonic, they'll do harm. They'll do harm, you see. Um, I think probably that people who have subjected themselves 
to these kind of things are possibly going to need ministry themselves. Um, I mean, before I was a Christian, when I was involved in the occult, I didn't for one moment believe it was evil spirits. But it didn't change the fact I become demonised because I opened myself to them. Now, this is the thing. If Christians even accidentally open themselves to demonic forces, whether or not you believe they're demonic forces, they affect you, you see. And there's one thing that I do notice, and uh, I often say this to Robert and Bella, and, and Belinda comments about it as well, because it's, it's, it's something that gives the lie to so much that is happening in the charismatic movement. Because we look at Christians, other Christians and churches, really into this kind of stuff, alright? And they say they're getting blessed up to the eyeballs with it. And we hear people say, oh, our church is really moving. And what that means is that oh, we're, we're doing all these different kinds of counselling, we're having all these special meetings for the special ministries and stuff like that. And you see, one thing that is obviously missing, where is the desire, the hunger, the thirst for Bible teaching? Because if there's one thing you don't see in churches into all this, it's Bible teaching. I mean, you get your 20 minutes little talk on Sundays, but not Bible teaching, can you see? And the people don't desire it. Who needs Bible teaching when you've got ministries like this? Now, that's what gives the lie, because in the Bible itself, the emphasis is that if you're going to grow, you've got to get into the Scripture. Can you see? And the reason that they don't have the emphasis on Bible teaching is because Satan knows that if they did, what they're doing would be exposed as being deception from the Word of God itself. And so you find that when Christians are really into stuff like that, they're, they're, they're not that interested in what the Bible teaches. I mean, think for yourself, like there are times around here when you have a public meeting and maybe it's a healing meeting, all right? and Christians come from all over and it's packed. Then you have someone down from a healing ministry team, alright, to teach you about, sorry, the healing of the memories. And you have a special weekend of meetings with one of them and they teach about healing of, and it's packed. Then you have someone else who's got one of these dramatic ministries and it's packed. Where are the Bible studies? Why is it you can't get these Christians to Bible teaching? Can you see there's something they're not right? Have dramatic stuff and it's packed. Have a Bible study, how many people come? Can you see, it, it, it gives the lie to it. The holy water, I mean at first I was completely taken aback when I saw that mm. document. So was I. And um, I, I didn't want to know. I didn't even want to read it. <coughs> if anyone wants to read it, I've got a copy. You can read it, see it for yourself, and shudder. And I mean that, and shudder. But I think that the deception started, I backed <coughs> I didn't even want to mm. The deception started to take hold of me when I heard that um, through things in the church, uh, <coughs> that this thing was working. <coughs> Whatever you think about it, the thing is, it's working. Mm. They're blessing this. And I was up to the saying, well, if you have to bless holy water, let's break it. Mm. You are the person who abuses it. Mm. Why, why go through water? Why not do yeah. it directly? That's right. It's, it's, being, it's being very effective. Yeah. What are you saying to uh, those there? If you don't believe in this, well, don't participate. You don't mm. have to. We're just saying we, we find this mm. effective and we're going to do it. Yeah. You, it seems to be all very, uh, very rational and mm. fair. And I was starting to slip into giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that's right. Our question isn't does it work, is it biblically? 
is it scriptural? Satan can make supernatural things happen. So therefore, the fact that something works is neither here nor there. Very important to understand that. Is it scriptural? That's the only question, really, that we need to ask. Is it scriptural? And if it's not, it's out. Yeah.